Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Regeneration. My name is Aaron. I'm very excited that you're all here today. Uh, if this is your first time with us, we have two things for you in the back. The first is a hey card. If you fill it out, you're going to get a little bit more information about what's going on here. And then we've got mugs full of sunglasses and pens and all kinds of fun goodies. Um, so look for that. We are excited here about interrupting people's lives with the love and kindness of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that we do that is through our check-ins. If you check in on your phone and use the hashtag RegenGives, we will make a donation on your behalf to the Bella Women's Center. Two other announcements. Uh, the first one, Night of Prayer, will be this Thursday. That is May 30th. We'll start at 7 o'clock. Um, so I hope that you all come to join us. And the last announcement, the June Feast is going to be Sunday, June 2nd, which is next weekend, at the Byler's House in Portland. Um, and feasts are just a time where we all kind of get together. We eat some food, so you'll look for more information on, like, what you can bring. Um, but it's usually a pretty good time. So, yeah. We're going to take an offering, and I would like to pray for us before we go back into worship. Jesus, thank you um, for allowing us to partner with you in all of the awesome stuff that you do. Um, we thank you that you can do way more with our money than we ever could. Um, we, we thank you for just the ability and the privilege to partner with you in everything that you're doing, in the way that you are transforming lives, in the way that you are transforming our city, in the way that you are transforming the seasons and bringing new life um, to our area through plants, but also just through um, new ideas and through a refreshed uh, vision and image of you. Um, Jesus, I just ask that you would be with us for the rest of our time here and that you would speak to us clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple things to add to Aaron doing announcements a little bit. Um, on Thursday night, we will be praying in particular. So we're trying to shift prayer night so that there's a specific focus, so it's not just come out and pray. Cool. We're praying for... And we fe I felt like, I kind of heard this from the Lord this week, we're praying for more servants and more leaders who answer God's call to partner in his purposes. More servants, more leaders who answer God's call to partner in his purposes. That's what we will be praying about Thursday. In the vein of servanthood, uh, Rebecca Stewart, is our, her title is site coordinator, and she and Dan have bought a house. Congratulations to them. And so they're going to take a couple weeks off so they can kind of navigate that life transition. And Randy and Jaris Banning will be coming interim temporary site coordinators. And they could use some help. And that job means coming about 30 minutes early and staying about 15 to 20 minutes late. Uh, please consider saying yes to that. You can talk to Randy and Jaris after worship. And they, it's really easy. A lot of what happens, though, here on Sunday mornings, there's some pre-work and some post-work. So that's a way that you could come alongside and then, Aaron, as you start thinking about response time um, after worship, I feel like we're going to, uh, I don't know, not to, I, where are they? Uh, Jenna Frisk, can you be available to pray? And um, 
Harry Britt, can you be available to pray with people? And Zach Byler, can you be available to pray with people um, during response time? And however you decide to lead that. Cool. 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you have a Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2. We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 1. And as we tune in on this, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, Israel has a problem. God's people have a problem. I'm sorry, Dan, I didn't sign in. Presentation handed over to you. Cool. God's people have a problem. God has gone quiet. First Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Literally, the word of the Lord was precious like rare stones or jewels. So rarely did God speak life and breathe his power on his people that the Hebrew writer describes revelation from the Lord as rare as precious stones. There was no frequent vision. And this is a problem because scripture says where there is no vision, the people perish. Now the faithful of Israel still go to the tabernacle in Shiloh to worship the Lord. The faithful of Israel go up year after year making the sacrifices at the appointed times, but God has gone quiet. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. I don't know if you've ever experienced the Lord's quiet. I don't know if you've ever gone looking for him, if you've needed a word from the Lord and not heard from him. That's a common experience if you're suffering or if you're in pain. If you're walking through a season of darkness, it's, it's not uncommon to feel like God is being silent. We talked about that in our last teaching series on doubt, but this is a different kind of quiet, a different kind of silence. It's a silence that remains, even as God's people, even as you and I can continue to participate in worship, continue to pray, continue to read scripture, continue to engage in those practices that usually connect us with God, and all of a sudden, God goes quiet, and hearing his voice is unusual and rare. I mean, some of us in this room have gone our entire Christian lives with only rarely hearing the Lord, walking in just this kind of a famine. How do we hear from God when he's gone quiet? How do we hear from God when his word is so rare, it's like a precious stone? This is the question that 1 Samuel 2.12, chapter 2, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 1, one long narrative, seek to answer this question. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and look at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. But first, just a quick review of this series that we've called King of Hearts, of this book called Samuel. Remember 1 and 2, Samuel, that's an artificial division that has to do with scroll length. It's just the book of Samuel. And the overall purpose of the book of Samuel is this, despite their outright rejection of his kingship, the Lord still seeks to be the king of his people's hearts and to move his redemptive purposes forward. God opposes Saul and David in their pride, but when David humbles himself, the Lord exalts him. The book invites us to look forward to the messianic king, Jesus, who is God's very own heart and who will bring God's kingdom and blessing to all the nations. Last week, we looked at a song or a poem or a prayer that Hannah, one of the main characters of the text, 
sings or prays, and in it we saw three themes that we noted will be on repeat throughout the whole book. Those themes that will just consistently even make themselves known today in the text before us. One of those themes is intervention and reversal, that at any given moment the Lord can and will intervene and reverse a person's circumstances to advance his purposes. Intervention and reversal. Another one of those themes is humility and pride, that God looks to the inward parts of a person to oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. Finally, this idea of the Messiah's kingdom, that the Lord is preparing a way for his chosen anointed king, Jesus, who will rule and reign in righteousness forever. 2.12 through 4.1, it's one long story, one long narrative in which all three of these themes are on display, especially the first two. The narrative shows us theologically and, and in the story of Scripture that Samuel is the spiritual leader that God has chosen to lead his people, and that Eli and his sons and his house are the leaders that God has rejected. Why? Why has God rejected the house of Eli? Because of the problem identified in chapter 3, verse 1, that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Chapter 2, verse 12 through 4, 1, seek to solve this problem, to seek to solve the problem of the rarity of the word of the Lord among God's people at this time. But let's jump back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, which tells us a little bit about the sons of Eli. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling, and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is not in accordance to the model law of Moses. They're doing it wrong. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. He will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said, let him burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Verse 17 says, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the eyes of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Verses 12 and 17 through chapter 2 kind of sandwich this terrifying and horrifying description of the priests of Israel, Eli and Hophni, treating the Lord and the worship of the Lord with contempt. They threaten by force anyone who tells, it, tells them to do it differently. These are crude men who use crude means to their own gain. And this is how their actions are described. They take the fork and stick it in the pot and take the fork and take it for themselves. Hophni and Phinehas, like their father Eli, are appointed as the priests in Israel. Their job, a priest's job, is to represent God to the people and the people to God. But how can a priest represent God to the people if they do not know the Lord? If their sin is very great in the sight of the Lord, how can they represent God well? How can they represent the people well? The answer is they can't. Eli, Hophni and Phinehas' father, tries to confront his sons in verses 23 through 25, but his attempt is half-hearted because he gains too much from his son's mistreatment of the worship of the Lord. And in verses 27 through 36, God rebukes Eli for honoring his sons, more than honoring the Lord. The Lord says to Eli in verses 29 through 31, 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Right here in this little passage, we see two of the three themes that we've already seen from Hannah's prayer. First of all, we see the theme of pride and humility. The Lord says, those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. And because of their pride, because of the pride of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, the Lord promises to intervene and reverse circumstances. I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will be no longer an old man in your house. These are the themes that are coming in, and what we're about to see is the author contrast Eli's biological sons, Phineas and Hophni, with Eli's spiritual son, Samuel. There's this theme of intervening and this theme of humility and pride. There's even this theme of Messiah's kingdom, of looking forward to a greater, in this case, priest. And in verse 35 of chapter 2, the Lord says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do what is in according, what is in my heart and mind. I mean, that ultimately looks forward to the priest Jesus, but in the short term, says, I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. In the short term, this priest who will do what is in the heart and the mind of the Lord is a little boy named Samuel. It's a little boy named Samuel. This faithful priest that does what is in God's heart and mind is the boy Samuel. And if you read chapter 2, if you go home and read chapter 2, there's these little sprinkles of details about Samuel's life all the way through. And it feels like they're just these throwaway statements or side notes that if you aren't careful, you totally miss that the narrator is trying to make a point. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. In verse 21, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. If you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke, that is how Jesus is described in his childhood. And Samuel grew, verse, chapter 3, verse 19, and Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. Three times you see that word grow, highlighted in blue. The Hebrew author uses a, a Hebrew word that means to grow or to mature or to become great. To grow or to mature, to become great. And what we see in chapter 2, heading into chapter 3, is that as Phineas and Hophni are becoming great sinners, Samuel is becoming a great man of God. As Phineas and Hophni are becoming great sinners, Samuel is becoming a great man of God. And all of these four statements are like little breadcrumbs leading us to 1 Samuel chapter 3, one of Scripture's best-known stories, especially if you grew up in Sunday school, you heard the story and were taught it, and I think our kids are going to hear it this fall. So look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Again, there's a contrast building between Eli and his sons and between Samuel. There's the, the narrator trying to make a point. And the text begins in this way. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see. He was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark 
of God was. Now remember, all of this narrative is about solving the problem named in chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. And that problem is expanded upon in verses 2 and 3, where we find the, the spiritual leader of Israel, the spiritual icon of his era, Eli, his eyes are growing dim. And in this theme of light and darkness and vision, we are forced to ask, how can Eli the priest lead his people when he can't see? This isn't just biology, this is spirituality. There can be no frequent vision in Israel when its priest's eyes have gone dim, not just the eyes of his body, but the eyes of his heart. And there in the near darkness of the tabernacle where little boy Samuel lays, that near darkness is taking a pulse on the spirituality of all of God's people in this moment, for whom the word of the Lord is rare and precious, for whom there is no frequent vision. Here is this little boy prayed for by his mother, who the text says is lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. The ark of God is the ark of the covenant. Do you remember Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? They pull it out and like they do the things and then they open it and something comes out and then everybody melts in clay and some really great 1980s special effects. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the ark of the covenant. We'll talk about it more next week too. The Ark of the Covenant is a gold box. There are two kind of angels on the top called the cherubim. Scripture says that the cherubim uphold the footstool of the Lord's throne. This, the Ark of the Covenant was viewed as the Lord's footstool. It is the focal point of God's presence on earth at this time. And here's a little boy named Samuel in the near darkness of the tabernacle lying at the feet of the Lord. Samuel is getting as close as he possibly came to the Lord. In fact, he is the closest of all the people in Israel to the Lord. This is not just a spatial note. This is a spiritual note. Let me just toss out to you that prayer is both a gesture and a posture. Prayer is what we do when we bow our heads and close our eyes and say some words, but it is also how we posture ourselves to hear and be with God. And here we see Samuel posturing himself to hear from God. He gets as close as he can to the Lord, spiritually, spatially, so he can hear from the Lord. Listen, if you want to hear from God, you cannot do it with your phone buzzing in your pocket every 30 seconds. You cannot do it with the TV on in the background. You cannot do it with the radio blasting. When Jesus prayed... It says that Jesus withdrew to a lonely place. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, go into the secret place. There has to be a withdrawal. There has to be a posture where we ready ourselves to hear from the Lord. That's what we see Samuel doing, this little boy. It's precious. So in this posture, he hears from the Lord. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and he lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose up and to Eli and said, here I am. That here I am phrase is what a servant said when they're ma- like presenting themselves to their master for a task or what a military person presenting to themselves to their commander would say. Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call you, son. Lie down. Now, verse 7 is interesting, by the way. Now, Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Tell you what, that's about to change in a big way. 
But do you notice that there's a difference between ministering to the Lord? It says that Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Literally in Hebrew, it's he grew up with the Lord. But there's still a difference about being around the Lord and knowing about the Lord and knowing the Lord. And too many of us are settling for knowing about instead of knowing. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed. Verse 8. The Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then, Eli, then, after the third time, then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. This is as much an indictment on Eli as anything. Why does it take Eli, the spiritual icon of his generation, three times to figure out that it's the Lord talking to him? It's because it has been so long since Eli heard anything from God personally. Of course. Of course it takes him three times. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man, and therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Church, repeat after me. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the, this is interesting, verse 10. And the Lord came and stood. The narration, it's just so interesting to me. The Lord came and stood calling out at his other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Cool. Five bucks says that's my mom trying to get in my car right now. Just throwing it out there. (laughs) So what is the thing that the Lord is about to do that makes everyone's ears tingle? Well, Samuel is given as a prophet a word from the Lord for his spiritual father, Eli. And unfortunately for Eli, the thing that Samuel has to say to, the, has to, say to Eli is not, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The thing he has to say is in verse 12, On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Verse 14 of chapter 3. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Stick that in your systematic theology hopper and smoke it. You know what I'm saying? There's a sin that shall not be atoned for forever. And it is Eli and his sons blaspheming. That is what little boy Eli, probably Malachi's age, 10 or 11, has to go and tell his spiritual father, a man in his 70s or 80s. By the way, you're going to be cut off from the house of Israel forever. So Samuel goes and does it. Eli does something strange or unusual for his character. Eli says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Again, a broken clock is right twice a day. And then the text says this. And Samuel grew, in verse 19, and Samuel grew. And the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. That's like saying everyone from L.A. to New York. It's a a merism. It's opposites to denote totality. Everyone from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And how old is Samuel right now? 10 or 11 years old. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel 
at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Remember, this narrative is about solving this problem of the, of the absence of the Lord's voice in Israel. And so by raising up the prophet Samuel, by rejecting Eli in his house, it says the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel. How? By the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is no longer rare under the leadership of Samuel as he takes up priestly and prophetic role in Israel as a boy. He is positioned to lead Israel through the establishment of monarchy. And he's just a little boy. This passage, uh, 1 Samuel 12, 2, 12 through 4, 1, it's a story that's all about contrast. It's a story all about contrast. Here is Samuel, the spiritual son of, of Eli, and here is Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's biological sons. Here is Samuel, who ministers to the Lord, who draws near to the Lord, who grows in favor with the Lord. Meanwhile, Eli and Hophni draw near to the Lord only for their own selfish gain, 1 Samuel 2, 12 through 4, 1 is a story about contrast, and it's a story about worship. It's a story about worship. Um, I have something to say today. This is unusual, feels unusually weighty and important. Samuel is described as someone who ministers to the Lord. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? When we talk about ministering to someone... We don't talk about ministering to the Lord. We talk about the people that we minister to, that Kayla and her team minister to the kids. Our circle leaders minister to the people in their circles, right? But Samuel shows us that as the people of Jesus, as God's people, the first person we are responsible for ministering to is the Lord. The first people we are responsible for ministering to is the Lord. And when we gather on a Sunday morning... We gather to minister to God. We gather to bless his heart, to praise him, to offer him glory, to offer him thanksgiving, to make a sacrifice, not of bulls, not of lambs, but of praise and holy living. And yet when we come to worship, we are far more like Hophni and Phinehas. We come, we do not come ready to please the Lord. We do not come ready to bless the Lord. We do not come ready to honor him. We come with one fork in a, our, our fork in one hand, our bib tied around our necks, and slobbering for whatever will make us feel good, whatever will please us, whatever will meet our preferences. We live in a consumeristic society that has gone off the rails. I can right now find any t-shirt that I want in a dozen colors down at the mall, and if they don't have what I want, I can order it on Amazon today, and for an extra five bucks, it'll be here tomorrow. And this consumerism has crept its way into the church and has entirely taken over in the West. Scott McKnight observes that contemporary Christianity has increasingly, this is the church, this is us, not the culture, that that contemporary Christianity has increasingly displaced the Bible as its foundation for knowing what to think and how to live and supplanted it with experience, desire, and preference. In other words, it has surrendered its heart to personal freedoms. And this is what looks, that looks like. Today, on most Sundays, you and I will evaluate our time spent together, this hour that we spend, you and I will evaluate it on what we like and what we didn't like. I liked that song. I didn't like that song. I liked when Kyle said that. I didn't like when Kyle said that. I don't like worship because of when we, do, we don't do this. I do like worship because we do that. When people tell me they don't like what's going on in worship, and I I hear that in this community as much as the community that I'm transitioning, 
When people tell me they don't like what's going on in worship, I am reminded of an author named Francis Chan. He's written a book called Forgotten God. He's written a book called Crazy Love. He's just written a book called Seven Letters. He tells a story that somebody came up to him after church and said, I didn't really like worship today. And his response was, that's okay, we're not worshiping you. You laugh because you know it's true. The consumerist mindset of worship in which we evaluate worship on the basis of what we like and what we don't like on the basis of experience and desire and preference, it is absolutely and diametrically opposed to the kind of worship upheld in Scripture, especially here in 1 Samuel. When we come into worship with our three-pronged fork and our piggly-wiggly bib, participating only in worship for what we can get out of it, for how it makes us feel, we worship the Lord with the exact same kind of contempt that Hophni and Phinehas worshiped the Lord with. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Do you know why? Do you know why there was no frequent vision? Do you know why there's rarity of the Lord's word in my life and in your life? It's not because God, and it's not a suffering thing. It's because we are so busy telling God what we want and how we want it and being mad at him when he doesn't give it to us that he can't get a word in edgewise. Hophni and Eli approached worship seeking only what they could get. And when we approach worship like Samuel to see what we can, what we can give to God, here's the irony. They go, they want to see what they can get. But when we go like Samuel, when we go with an attitude of what can I give to God, what blessing, what praise, what, ble- what honor, what glory, what thanksgiving, I find, you and I find, that when we worry about giving to God, we actually get exactly what we were looking for, which is nearness to God. That is what we need. That is what our hearts crave. That is what we are made for. But when we come into worship looking for this thrill or this feeling or that, we don't get near to God. God can't get a word in edgewise. But when we come into worship to this time, to the time that we'll spend on Thursday, with eager feet to bless God, we will find the very thing our hearts have craved which is nearness to God. You know, this morning, and most Sunday mornings, I will sing about eight or nine songs of worship of varying styles from different decades by different worship leaders and different teams. I will worship with songs written this year and in the last five years and in the last 300 years. All of them say true things about God. All of them say true things about me. All of them say true things about the world. All of them say true things about the nature of salvation. And so what makes worship true, what makes worship good, is not, did I like it? Did I like that song? What makes worship good is when we are singing true things about God and leveraging our spirits into that to give God praise and to give God honor. Jesus says, the time is coming and is now here when the Father will bring to himself, people who worship in spirit and in truth. So we sing true things about God, but we leverage our spirits into them so that we are giving to God ministry. We are ministering to God. We are blessing his heart. And what I'm trying to do today, church, as your pastor, as your spiritual father, is to challenge a consumeristic approach to worship which lies right underneath the surface of every time we gather and invite you into a posture 
that you encounter God in a life-giving and life-changing way and hopefully to do it without shaming. I'll let Francis Chan do the shaming. Okay. So what might that look like? How do we engage in this posture? Three things. First, stop talking about what you like and what you don't like. It is a fruitless vein of conversation. It is pointless because we are not here to worship you. We are here to worship God. The better question is, the question isn't, did I like worship today? The question is, did God like worship today? Was he pleased by that? Was he honored by that? When you are confronted with a new song, a new style of worship, you can do a couple things. You can sit there. You can mentally evaluate it for theological accuracy. You can mentally evaluate it for accuracy to your preferences. Or you can choose to use the words on the screen as a chance to draw near to your creator and bless his heart. Second, when you gather for worship, I would invite you to do a quick Google search of your heart to do a quick ask Jeeves of what's going on in here. And ask, God, am I coming today to give you my heart and my life and my praise and my blessing and my thanksgiving, or am I just here to get something from you? I want to lovingly say, I want to lovingly say that when we consistently show up to worship 10, 15, 20, 25 minutes late, it seems to me, or it causes me to wonder if it's more about what we're getting as opposed to what we're giving. Am I coming to give you my heart, my life, my praise, my blessing, my thanksgiving? Listen, sometimes we come and listen, there are going to be weeks, there are going to be months, there are going to be years where you are dragging yourself across that threshold because life is that hard. And all you are hungering for is a word of peace, a word of blessing from God. When you draw near to the Lord in a season of suffering, when you draw near to the Lord in a season of suffering, seeking relief, that is ministry to the Lord. That blesses his heart. He delights in that. He loves drawing near to the brokenhearted. That is a different posture. I'm saying this because some of you are in really, really, almost want to cuss about it, bad situations in your life right now. And you are coming and you are being faithful just to cling onto maybe one word of hope that God would have for you. That ministers to the Father's heart. What doesn't is when I come in with my fork out and my bib on and I can show up 10 minutes late because I don't really like the worship part. I only really like when Kyle talks and then I'll leave while communion's happening because I don't need that part either. I'll just take the parts of the buffet that I want and then I will leave. That is, a, that is sacrosanct against the offering of the Lord. That, that is making it a small thing. That is belittling the God who just wants to be with you. Third, if you don't like worship, there are some people, I'm a, I, I like to sing. I like worship. I'm the guy that raises his hands a lot. Some of us don't like that. This is maybe what it means then to make what the Bible calls or to offer what the Bible calls a sacrifice of praise. 
a sacrifice of praise. Hebrews 13, 15. Let us then offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Some people just don't connect musically with God. I understand that. Different strokes for different folks, I get that. And yet the universal command of Scripture is to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, whether or not you like to sing. You might say, I have a really bad, bad voice. Good news, Scripture says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Not a joyful four-part harmony, a joyful noise. A big sign of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life is when they start singing at church. Um, Especially people like, I don't really like that part. So if you don't like to sing, if you don't connect with that musical part of our gathering, participating in it anyway, despite your discomfort and your disconnection, is exactly what the Bible means by making a sacrifice of praise. In the busyness and craziness, listen, I have kids now. I understand that it is impossible to get anywhere quickly or on time right? This morning, I'm walk- I, somebody at Grace Church saw my carpool, and they, they walked away from the door because they're like, it's probably going to be five minutes till they get in here. I know. A sacrifice of praise is beginning my Sunday morning on Saturday night so we can get here for this hour, for this time. It might be, sacrifice of praise might be laying your comfort, your schedule, your Sunday afternoon plans with your family on the altar for a sacrifice of praise, turning off your phone when you come in this space instead of tweeting and texting your way through it. What I am trying to do today is challenge, without shaming this consumeristic approach to worship, while inviting you to a posture where you encounter God in a life-giving and life-changing way. What I, what I love about preaching through books of the Bible at a time is if Kyle had planned to write a message on worship, it would not be nearly as good as us just coming to it as in the course of the text. I'm really excited about it. I'm trying to call us beyond consumerism. I'm trying to call us beyond what we do and do not like, beyond treating worship like Hophni and Phinehas. I want to call us into treating worship, pressing into worship like Samuel, to come into this place to see what we might have to give God. What blessing to his heart, what ministry to him, what honor, what thanksgiving. Come into his courts with gladness. Come into his gates with thanksgiving, Scripture says, with thankful praise. And the funny thing is, when we come into this place at this time, we come in Thursday night. Listen, Thursday night, we're coming in to seek the Lord. But we're coming first to just give him honor and enthrone him in our hearts. And when we seek to give to the Lord, the irony of it is that we actually get what we needed all along, which is nearness to God, nearness to God. Psalm uh, 73, one of my favorites, tells is kind of the story where a guy is wrestling with how, like, The wicked seem to prosper, and the righteous seem to have a hard go of it. Why is that? Okay. So the the psalmist wrestles with these things, and then he says, I almost, I would have betrayed a generation of your children because I almost just started complaining about it. But then he says this, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood. 
whom have I in heaven but you, he says, and nothing on earth, there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And he says, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. What you do not need, church, is like the tinglys when we sing a song that you like or the tinglys when Kyle says a certain thing in a certain way that you like it. What you need is nearness to God. The Father who loved you and made you from the foundation of the earth wants to walk with you every day of this life. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works, the psalmist says. I can choose to come into worship wanting to get something, or I can come into worship wanting to give something. I can want to give my praise and my blessing and my honor. And as I do, I get nearness to God, which is exactly what my heart craves. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and uh, for what you're doing in this place. Thank you for the honor of rebuking and correcting, of giving grace and instruction. Nobody learns more than the teacher, uh, and so I have had much to repent of this week. But thank you. Amen. Okay, we're doing something a little different this week. We're going to take a few minutes to just kind of process through and respond with the Lord um, to what we just heard. Um, what does it look like for us to make a sacrifice of praise? Um, some of you, as Kyle was speaking, had a very clear picture of what you need um, to give up, what you've been holding back. I don't know what that is for you, but you do. Um, I know for me, um, I enjoy the ritual of coming to church on Sunday. I enjoy coming here and playing music with my friends and um, those are good things, and I think that God is, like, pleased with those. But when that becomes what I am holding um, above a desire to draw near to God and above a desire to minister to Jesus, um, that's a sin, and that's something that I need to repent of. So as you're processing through this, think of anything that, um, hey, this is what I've actually been worshiping, and I would like to present that to you as a sacrifice. I would like to give that up. And we believe that after every death, after every repentance, there is new life. Um, so I would also encourage you, after you've identified whatever that is, to just ask Jesus, like, what do you have for me in exchange? Um, there's going to be some people in the back if this is something that you want to pray about. Um, otherwise, we're just going to pause here for a few moments. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The Lord loves you and sees you. May you offer him a sacrifice of praise this week. Much love. We'll see you next time.